0: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the London School of Economics. Welcome to the Forum of European (coughs) Philosophy, and welcome to tonight's event on making a difference and choosing a career. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for tonight, uh, Will McGaskill. Will is both an academic philosopher, and I'm not sure whether you're happy with that label, but here we go, and an activist. Um, As an academic philosopher, he uh, just finished his DPhil at the University of Oxford. He's moving on. To position at the University of Cambridge this fall. He works on questions of moral uncertainty and on effective altruism. It's the topic of effective altruism, but his activism is also about. He's involved um, with the organization Giving What You Can, and he's the founder and president um, of the organization 80,000 Hours, um, which works on making a difference and choosing a career. We will talk for about 30 to 45 minutes, and we'll have a discussion um, Q&A um, after he's finished so I just
1: hand over to you thank, okay, thank you everyone. thank you very much great okay thank you all for coming thank you for being here um, so I'm going to talk uh, quite informally and there's going to be plenty of time for questions um, so please think of all the many reasons why I'm just obviously wrong and what I say um, and then we can have a good conversation about them uh, after i have given the talk. So I got interested in this, so kind of all my life I really wanted to make a difference in the course of my life. I was very much encouraged to do that in my, by my family and it was something I had an innate desire to do. And I did a lot of fairly ad hoc different activities, so I worked as a, a carer in a nursing home and I was a fundraiser for Care International, a development charity for a while. I used on summer camps for children with uh, disabilities. Um, I once went to Ethiopia to teach at a school. Um, uh, but throughout, I kind of had a thought of, well, how much of a difference am I really making um, when I'm doing these things? Like, is it really having the impact I'd like it to have? Uh, and that really affected my career choice as well. I mean, when I was thinking about um, what career I should go into as an undergraduate, I thought about working for non-profits or trying to get a job at the UN but the whole thing seemed quite vague Um, it seemed you know I had these worries about well aren't charities just a kind of band-aid, the UN isn't that just completely corrupt Um, maybe I can do good through going uh, uh, do good through becoming an academic and so on but how often does that happen so I had just a lot of worries Um, I, uh, I really didn't know just how to resolve them, and there there wasn't actually much information out there. So this was something that was kind of bubbling in the back of my head, Uh, and it came to the fore again in about 2011. So in 2009, I set this organisation called Giving What We Can, and it had two aims. One was to encourage people to give more, so encourage everyone to give at least 10% of their earnings, and some of us went quite a bit further than that, so uh, inspired by philosophical arguments um, saying that really we have this very strong duty because we're so wealthy compared to people in uh, very poor countries and because we have that wealth really through no fault of our own it's just because we happen to be born into very wealthy countries um we ought to be giving very large proportions of what we earn and i was very very convinced by them and i along with a number of other people who set up this organization uh, pledged to give everything we earned above twenty thousand pounds per year and so that was one aspect of it, which was encouraging people to give more. But the second and, I think, more interesting aspect is also thinking about getting people to give more effectively. So normally when we give to charities, we, don't, we think, okay, well, I trust that they're going to do a good job, let's say. We don't think in depth about how much of an impact, how much is this improving different people, people's lives. And we don't think about potentially comparing different charities in terms of the effect they can have. And what we did was draw on the latest research from health and development economics in order to shed light on that question and really ask and figure out what are the charities that do the most to improve the lives of other people um, with every pound or dollar you give them. And the results were pretty astonishing. So we found that there were hundreds or maybe even factors of thousands between even charities that do a good job, even between charities that work. And that got quite a bit of attention, and it meant that um, kind of something of a movement around these ideas started to build up, especially around universities. And after this had been around for a couple of years, people started coming to us, coming to, um, uh, me especially, and asking, well, OK, you've done this great research on what careers do the most good, but uh, sorry, what charities do the most good, but I've got this decision coming up in like a year's time. I need to know what ought I to be doing with my career. And So I thought, yeah, this is just this really important question. And there's just really very little um, research out there. Um, As I'll talk about, I think the kind of common sense advice around doing good or choosing a career that makes a difference actually has some pretty major problems with it. And so we gave a lecture. We talked about this. It was very well-received. And so uh, we gradually built this up. It became an organization of its own called 80,000 Hours, where that name comes from the number of hours you will typically work in the course of your life. Um, you might think, whoa, what a drag, okay, this incredibly long time period. But actually, when you're thinking about trying to do good, when you're thinking about, okay, yeah, I really want to make a dent in the problem of poverty or climate change or something like that, actually, 80,000 hours is this tiny amount of time. And you only have one shot, really, at uh, using those hours, so you really want to make sure that you use them as effectively as possible. And normally, when we're making a decision, we think, okay, it's reasonable to spend, say, 1% of that time working out how to spend the remaining 99%. If you did that with your career, that would be 800 hours of um, solid thinking and planning in order to work out how to spend the remaining part. And it seems like people spend much less time than that, and, and that seems like a mistake. So uh, what I'm going to do in this talk is tell you a little bit about why I think the common-sense view around <coughs> career choice um, really has some, uh, what I think of, uh, pretty major problems with it. And I'm going to introduce a framework for thinking about doing better, and I'm going to give some examples of careers um, where I think you can actually make a really uh, very substantial difference. So I think there are three... So the common sense view is normally the most ethical careers are um, becoming a doctor or a teacher or working for a charity. And the theme is that in these ethical careers, you're directly working with the beneficiaries of your actions. Um, so you're seeing the kind of tangible benefits of what you do. You're working directly with the with the needy. Uh, now I think that's a mistake for a few reasons. So one the first thing I think, and I think this is the most important of all actually is that it just doesn't distinguish between different cause areas or different sorts of programs that you can be doing. So if you can take one or two charity jobs at this view, would just say, yeah, both are great. Um, think about what's of personal interest to you or something like that. And I think that's a big mistake because um, through the research we've been doing, even within the, what seems like a very similar area, so even within developing world education, there can be huge differences in how effective the programs implemented are. So um, let's use this example of developing world education. Many programs that people have tried to implement and they're still very popular, still hire people and pay employees, uh, simply don't work at all. So, something as obvious as providing textbooks, um, to schools that often only have one textbook among an entire class of 30, Um, that's been tested many times. Um, The evidence seems to suggest it just doesn't have an effect. Uh, That reason There being many reasons, but often textbooks in curricula and poor countries are just not well-matched for students. Um, Often uh, English is also not even the first language of the students um, in the classrooms where these books are going. Um, And so from the high-quality studies that have been done on this, it seems like providing textbooks isn't actually providing much of an effect. Um, Other things are having an effect. Again, if we're thinking about developing world education, uh, providing free school uniforms, um, which lowers one barrier to school attendance, that has been tested and that has uh, significant effect. Um, if you're funding free school uniforms, you are increasing the amount of school attendance and test scores, um, at least in the places where this has been tested. So that's something that we can say works, but it's still not nearly as effective as other things. So something you might not have heard of is deworming children. Over one billion people worldwide suffer from worms or helminths is the uh, technical term, but these are 20 centimetres to 30 centimetres long um, parasitic worms that live in your intestine and affect 95% of people in sub-Saharan Africa and a billion people worldwide. And they're not nearly as dramatic as HIV, AIDS, or malaria, or tuberculosis, and they don't affect anyone in the developed world, which is why uh, we never really hear about them. But they do... Make, um, and they don't kill as many people as these other diseases. But they do make um, children especially very sick. And so when this was tested, as a, you know, just they were testing all these different sorts of activities, um, school books, providing it to teachers and so on. thought, well, we'll test providing deworming tablets to our children, children, um, curing them of these diseases. And the effect was absolutely huge. So every $3.50 they were spending was providing a year of school, additional school attendance in aggregate. And so that showed that um, firstly, there were these just amazingly powerful ways of doing good. And secondly, the, the ways of doing good were some, you know, could often be very unexpected. Um, certainly, we wouldn't normally think of, okay, well, obviously, the vital bendazole to cure um, uh, hookworm and Like That wouldn't be off on, on the top of our heads as ways to improve school education. It was actually incredibly powerful. Uh, and now, that's just one very specific sort of activity. But even within that, if you compare something that works, like providing free school uniforms and deworming children, you have about 100 times the effect size. So there's this huge difference um, in how much of a benefit you're providing with a given amount of resources, even between two things that work and seem like they would be good. Now, that's started to be noticed in the field of charity evaluation and working out how to spend your money. Um, but it's very rarely considered in... Uh, the field of pursuing a career at all. So that would be the very first thing, is making sure you focus on the very most effective causes. Um, and I could talk much more about that than I hope I can in questions, but I'll keep going on. So the second is about power and the amount of influence you have. So again, with these paradigmatic recommended careers, your are opportunity for influence, or the amount of resources you have power or influence over, is less than it um, could be, normally, given your other options. If you're um, interacting with small number of beneficiaries, as a doctor or teacher or charity worker, you definitely have um, influence over those people you're interacting with, but that's limited compared to politics or policy or even things like the media. And again, I'm not saying that they're wrong yet to be recommending these things, um, but only that this is a consideration that um, the common sense advice seems not to really be sensitive to. Uh, The third, and I think most philosophically interesting, is um, that the common sense advice seems to misunderstand what making a difference really consists in. Now, um, as a kind of parable for this, imagine that uh, I... Yeah, imagine that I see a woman who's had a heart attack and she's lying on the ground. And she's surely going to die unless someone does CPR and restarts her heart. And let's suppose that I um, run and restart her heart. And she's, uh, I save her life, but because I'm kind of sucking at CPR, she's left with a disability. So I've definitely provided a major benefit there. Um, Living a life, even with, uh, you know, her life uh, will continue, um, and you know she'll be very glad that I did that and so on. Uh, but now suppose, um, and the be- benefit I've provided is, um, or oh, the kind of amount of good I've done is just how good it is for her to have lived those additional years. But now suppose that it wasn't just me in the scene; there was a paramedic as well, um, and that paramedic was already there, about to start CPR, and. Just assume we can know this perfectly, but the paramedic would have done a much better job and just completely saved uh, this woman's life, and she'd have been perfectly healthy afterwards. Um, But now suppose that I want to be the one having an impact. So I run up to the woman, push the paramedic out of the way, and I start administering (laughs) CPR myself. And I still save the woman's life, but she's left severely disabled. Um, What should I say about that? Should I say, yeah, I've saved a life. I'm a hero. It seems clearly not. what we should care about is the difference between uh, the good, kind of how good the world is, given that I act as I do, and how good the world would have been if I hadn't acted in this way. And if I hadn't acted in this way, things would have been even better for the world. And so that's why I did harm, even by in a sense, saving a life. Now that seems quite obvious in this um, very idealized case, sort of case that philosophers tend to love, so I apologize <laughs> apologize for that. Um, but this applies very widely within career choice. So consider becoming a doctor, and you ask a question, how much good do doctors do? Uh, well, let's start off with the question, just, and they do the search and so on, we'll bracket that, put that to the side, but just what's the health benefit, how many lives do they save, for example? And you might think there's two very obvious ways of working that out. The first thing is that you can just look at all the operations and treatments they perform, over the course of their career work out how good each of those are um, how many life-saving operations they have add them all up and that's the amount of good they've done the second thing you could do is just to look at the health benefit of medicine as a whole so uh, you could ask how good is it that we have a medical system and medical care in the uk let's say um, what would the uk be like if we didn't have that um, that's the total benefit from med- um, from having the NHS and other medical care. Divide that by the number of doctors and other medical professionals. Um, and there you have it. That's, that's another way of working out the good that a doctor does. Uh, that's what. So one of my uh, friends who also does the search for us, Greg Lewis, he's a doctor. And he wanted to work out how much good he does. And this was the way he was initially thinking about this. And it turns out you can actually get figures on this. Um, He's quite a nerd, so he did the research himself, and he worked out that using this uh, method, you'd have an amount of benefit, provide an amount of benefit as a doctor equivalent to saving about 75 lives. Um, that's measuring ways of improving people's lives, as well as merely saving lives. Um, doctors and uh, health officials can have metrics that allow you to aggregate these things. Um, it'd be an amount of good equivalent to saving about 75 people's lives. Now, that's pretty good. But then he realized there were a couple of mistakes in that way of thinking about things. This was actually first raised to him by another doctor when he was, uh, I think, just interning or shadowing someone. And he was saying, well, doesn't it feel great for saving lives on a regular basis? And he was somewhat disappointed that doctors tended to be much more skeptical about the impact they were having. And one of them said, well, you know, if I wasn't saving this person, uh, or if I wasn't Meeting this person, you know, my colleague down the corridor would be doing just the same thing. So how much of <laughs> an impact am I really having? And that meant that he wanted to work out, OK, what's the actual difference he's making? So if he'd not gone into medicine, um, what would have happened? Certainly wouldn't have been the case that just there would have been this Gregory Lewis-shaped hole throughout all the hospitals that he'd worked at. Rather, well, someone else would have gone to medical school Um, Someone else who would become a doctor. And they would have done those operations in his place. Um, So the first thing you'd need to work out is, well, just how much better is is he than the person who would be in his position? And obviously it's very difficult to work that out, but you can make at least some sort of guesses. And it's certainly not the case that the person who would have been in his position would have achieved absolutely nothing. Um, So the difference he makes is really just the difference between... The benefit of the healthcare system given that he's working there, and the benefit of the healthcare system given that someone else is working there. And that would be considerably less than those 75 lives. So that's one way in which um, that kind of simple view would overstate the impact he has. The second way is that we were thinking about the benefits of the average doctor rather than having the benefits of an additional doctor. So again, suppose that in this case. <coughs> Suppose that Gregory Lewis had the option to become a doctor, and he really could add one more doctor um, to the population of the UK. It's not the case that he'd just be replacing someone else. Now, what certainly wouldn't be the case is that he'd be doing... Um, it certainly wouldn't be the case that he'd be causing life-saving operations to happen that wouldn't have otherwise ha- otherwise have happened. The reason is that... Um, there are currently about 80,000 doctors in the UK, and with that, we're already performing the most important operations and treatments. Um, in general, if you've got limited time, which uh, doctors and uh, the medical service in general have, you'll focus on the most important things first. That's like life-saving operations, and then um, the things that are on the borderline as to whether you've actually got time to do them are, not, are much more minor ailments. And so, if you think about simply adding one more doctor to the um, population of the UK, then what you're going to change is not the number of life saving operations that are being done. We're already doing as many as we can. Rather, you're just going to enable people to, to be able to do more of those more minor treatments. So that's the kind of theory, but um, luckily, Greg Lewis um, is a real nerd and he has a good background in statistics. So we actually try to work out what's the quantitative estimate of how much good a doctor does. And the way he did this was by um, looking at the healthcare services of many different countries, um, looking at the healthcare benefits from those countries, um, and plotting the number of doctors against the benefits. And using that, um, and then afterwards correcting for this fact that someone else would be in the shoes and would be using up much of the benefit there. And using that, he got the conclusion that he. Probably by provide a benefit of something like saving three lives over the course of his life. Now that's still amazing if you think about how good you'd feel if you saved someone's life. That's uh, you know a really tremendous achievement. But it might be a lot less than you actually think because we intuitively think in terms of you know, the direct benefit you are providing. We often forget to think about what would have happened otherwise. And if you're in a field where um, if you weren't there, some other altruistic person would be there doing much the same work, then the effect you have might be much less than you'd otherwise think. Uh, now, I talked about being a doctor there. I think many of the same considerations apply to um, kind of commonsensically ethical careers. It's not, al- that's not always the case. You have to think on a case by case basis. Um, but in many cases, going and working for a pre existing charity or uh, going to become a teacher or a doctor. Um, In terms of the impact you're going to have, you've got to think about what would have happened otherwise, and whether you're just taking the place of someone else who'd be doing almost equally as good a job. So those are, I think, the three biggest problems with the kind of common sense advice of going and working for what you regard as an ethical organization directly impacting the beneficiaries. Um, So our next question is just how can we do better? Uh, so we have a framework that we provide, but the key is just two different aspects. Um, first is the direct impact you'll have in the course of your job, where you're taking into account both the amount of leverage or the amount of influence you can have in that position, and taking into account what would have happened otherwise. Um, and the second, uh, and in the early stages, I think even more important, is uh, how much does this gear you ha- up to have an impact later on? So it might well be the case that what you should do early on is simply build up your skills, your um, credentials, your network, and so on. And that might not have a direct impact early on, but potentially you can have a much bigger impact later on. So using the concepts that I've uh, suggested so far, um, I'll go through uh, four career choices that I think are extremely high impact. Um, So the first, um, and one that uh, has garnered a lot of attention I don't think it's, the mo- it's for absolutely everyone but it's often what gets focused on because it's a very new idea is um, what we call earning to give so there the idea is deliberately taking a high earning career in order that you can donate a large proportion of your um, earnings to the very best causes and if we think about these uh, different issues i said we can um, that kind of sheds light on why this is uh, often a very promising uh, career loop. The first is in terms of uh, cause effectiveness. So if you're working, trying to work for a specific organisation, that can be quite difficult. If you're trying to work for a specific programme, that can be quite difficult, um, unless you're very, very good, you don't really have a limited choice of career options. And that can mean it's very difficult to work only for the very best organisations. In contrast, if people almost always want money, um, no matter what situation they're in, and so if you're earning to give, um, then you're able to donate to the very best causes. Um, and you're almost always able to do that. You can use your money in a very targeted way. And because different causes vary so much in terms of the effects they have on people's well-being with the resources they have, um, that can be this, you know, this really huge deal. Second is thinking about what would have happened otherwise. So when we talked about Greg Lewis and... Uh, the fact that the operations he performed, most of them would have happened otherwise. The same thing isn't true for donations. So if you're in a... Most people in the UK donate about 0.7% of their earnings. Um, that actually goes down as a proportion um, among more wealthy people. Uh, it goes up again among billionaires, I think. But for the kind of... Rich in this country, you actually donate less than 0.7%. Whereas if you're... Um, going into a career with the aim of donating 30% or 50% um, or some very sizable chunk of your earnings, almost none of those donations would have happened otherwise. And so that means you're making a difference that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Uh, the final thing is then, again, thinking about impact you could potentially have later on, um, where, again, often the most, often more lucrative careers, at least in the early stages, Um, Precisely because the firms you're working for have more money, they're able to provide more training um, often can be uh, a great thing to have on CV as well. Um, So consulting is a great example of this, where people generally regard it. It's just this great general purpose business training and gives you a lot of options um, if you decide to then move to other places. Uh, So that's only to give. And Greg Lewis, um, convinced by this research and convinced by these arguments, um, that's his, that's uh, what he's planning to do, for example. So um, he's staying within uh, medicine, but deliberately moving into a specialty where he can earn more um, in that specialty. So rather than focusing on the specialty where he thinks he'd have the biggest direct impact, he, realized, he thought, thank you, uh, that he could have an even bigger impact just through his donations. And that's almost certainly correct. So as a result of doing this, he'll be able to donate a couple of million pounds over the course of his life. Um, He's planning to donate about 50%. And uh, if you donate to the very most cost-effective causes, um, so we'll just focus again on the developing world, you can save a life of about $3,400. That's the kind of current best estimate. Um, That might seem low to you. Um, Charities often advertise these stellar life-saving costs. When I worked as a fundraiser, I, uh, I used to say 20 pence can buy a vaccine, a polio vaccine that could save a life. Well, I was meant to suggest like 20 pence would save a life, but uh, that was misleading in a number of ways. It's more like 20 pence can buy for the, uh, buy the vaccine itself, but not any of the distribution, um, not any of the overheads and all the necessary conditions. Um, and it could save a life, that's definitely true, but. Um, almost always at work. Um, and the uh, polio vaccines is just this incredibly effective intervention. Um, not now, so it's the... Because the Gates Foundation have already Basically, they're just going to keep funding it until um, we eradicate polio. It's very easy um, to be misled by those sorts of figures. But kind okay, of all things considered, based on the best research, being kind of sceptical, estimates, estimate it's about $3,400. Um, and that means over the course of his life, he should be thinking about saving maybe three lives um, uh, through the work he does, but then a thousand lives through his donations. And that only shows just quite how big an effect, how big a difference you can have between the power of donations
2: and the work that you do.
1: (coughs) So that's one path. Um, I think it's important uh, to think about having to give... So for two reasons. So one is that there's a path that's really open to everybody. So... um, So... even you know, often I'm giving these talks at um, places like LSE or Oxford, or places where people will have you know, pick of just many kind of very high earning jobs. Um, but even if you're um, uh, not in you know that such privileged position um, and you have more limited options, uh, you almost always have the option to either uh, move to a higher earning career than you could have done, or just simply work more hours at the career you are doing, um, doing overtime. Um, and that, and if you do that, and you donate to the, these most cost-effective causes, that means that really anyone um, has this power or opportunity to be uh, saving lives fairly um through the career they choose to do through their donations. The second thing is just—it's, I think, a good baseline. So um, you can. With learning to give, you can really quantify kind of how much an effect you can, you can have. You can think about, well, how much could I earn? How much could I donate? How much good could those donations do? And I definitely don't think it's always the best thing, um, but it does mean you can say, okay, well, this is the kind of minimum. If I'm going to pursue something else, I should think about the fact that I could do more. Um, I should justify that by thinking, okay, well, I can do more in, ex- um, in expectation by pursuing this other career than I can by... Uh, Doing I need to give. So, I'll quickly mention three other paths as well. So, um, one is entrepreneurship. Uh, so, again, this is potentially something that wouldn't happen otherwise. I'll give what's currently one of my favorite examples. So, again, someone in the 80,000 Hours community called Lincoln Quirk. It's also one of my favorite names, I just enjoy saying it. Um, so, Lincoln Quirk, uh, he co founded an organization called um, WAVE. And the purpose of it is to reduce the costs of immigrants sending remittances back um, to their family in the home country. So, uh, whereas global aid funding is about $130 billion a year, I think, remittances are $500 billion. So, there's actually huge um, transfer of money every year. Uh, but at the moment, the only way to send money. Um, uh, back is usually through Western Union, and they take 10%. Um, in contrast, he can do it, so you don't have to go to a, a branch of Western Union, you can do it from phone uh, to phones, using um, the M-Pesa. It's amazing, in Kenya they have a, a wonderful system where you pay for almost everything uh, using mobile phone. You can pay the money directly, and they'll only take 3%, which is only, slight, uh, only slightly more than it's actually costing them. And so then, the very early stages, This is clearly something that can have this potential for absolutely huge impact. I mean, if they were really able to um, displace Western Union for that whole market, that would be them having increased uh, financial flows to the developing world by about 50 billion per year. And I'm sure they're not going to be able to quite reach that, but this is this potentially huge thing. And it's not something, again, so we can think that's the kind of leverage, just how much influence you're having. Again, you can ask, um, well, is this something that would have happened otherwise? And often in entrepreneurship, the answer can be yes. If there's a problem, and uh, there's, you know, lots of lots of people who are wanting to solve that problem, um, whether making money for that or as a non-profit, um, that will also often happen other, um, anyway. Um, in this case, for a kind the of what reasons, the answer seems to be no. And um, so again, it seems like this is a benefit that would have happened otherwise. Um, that wouldn't have happened otherwise and finally then because they're starting their own thing it means they can really focus on something that they think are going to be incredibly high impact whereas if they were just going to work at a company then uh, they'd be much more limited in their kind of choice of focus area um, that's entrepreneurship uh, third thing is policy so um, we've done again some analysis in terms of trying to work out uh, just within the UK so far Uh, how much of a benefit can you potentially provide if you were able to be successful going into politics Um, and also what are your chances of success. And uh, we've discovered that the UK is even more elitist than you might think. Um, So if you're of a certain demographic, so if you're Oxford's politics, philosophy and economics um, and you're one of the presidents of uh, the, the debating union or the student union, and you decide to go into politics. You have a one in three chance of becoming an MP, one in uh, one, one in three hundred chance of becoming prime minister. At least based on historical data. Um, we should expect that to go down, but it's still, um, but it's still really kind of remarkable that um, people in certain demographics, without knowing anything other than those facts about themselves, about them, they have the potential to, uh, you know, actually have a little bit like really non negligible shot at running the country. Um, and so this is a kind of instant career where you're probably not actually going to have that big an impact because still the case you're more likely you're not going to be a on MP. Perhaps you can do other things instead. But where most of the impact you're having is just this kind of lottery ticket of um, really having substantial influence. But that means we've got to work out how great an influence you have. Um, well, I think the budget's about... 750 billion every year, um, so uh, others at 80,000 hours started so to do some analysis of, well, how much do you think you can influence of that, What, how big are the benefits that are you know, non-financial that you can have, and so on. And the kind of estimates we had were that, uh, yeah, actually in expected terms, so multiplying the chance of success by how great a benefit it would be if you were successful, are uh, really very large indeed, equivalent <coughs> to, say having targeted donations or money influenced of somewhere between 7 and £70 million. Pounds. Um, we think in that case it's just very heavily dependent on who you are, um, whether you could simply hack going into politics and um, often being having your private life very public, um, a matter of uh, your skills as well, but that's something where if you do have a light constellation of states, potentially absolutely huge influence. Then the final one is research. Uh, so again, this is something where, so this is something where you'd expect market forces to systematically undersupply research. Um, the reason is that markets are good when well markets make I shouldn't say good markets make things happen when the people producing something will gain most of the benefits from it, at least enough of the benefits. In contrast with the uh, or any sort of innovation almost all the benefits accrue to other people. So um, from some analysis that's been done, I suggest about uh, for a sort of innovation where that can count as entrepreneurship and research, about 2% of the um, benefits that provides um, are kind of are able to be captured by the person doing it. Um, it's also the case that there's just amazing, amazing historical record for the power of research to improve the quality of people's lives. So, Norman Borlaug um, uh, was um, an agricultural researcher in the US. And he's really kind of an interesting person for a number of reasons. For number of reasons. Wasn't particularly smart. Um, didn't, didn't have like stellar academic credentials and so on. But he was just really driven to do this one thing, which is produce a new variant of wheat. Um, so and the variant he produced was, was very sim- it was very simple. It was like kind of an obvious idea. He used techniques that had been around since the Victorian era. He was incredibly dedicated to doing this one thing. He designed a strain of wheat that uh, was short stem, um, so it would break less often, and it was disease-resistant. Um, and yet that very simple uh, innovation facilitated the Green Revolution, um, which resulted in... So when he won the Nobel Prize, they estimated he'd saved a billion lives, um, which is doing pretty well. (laughs) I think um, that's a significant overestimate, uh, both just looking at the numbers and also remember to consider what would have happened otherwise. Um, Fairly similar things would have happened, but perhaps they would have happened later. But certainly this was able to drastically um, increase agricultural yields, across Asia especially, and Africa somewhat as well. Um, And... It just allow the world to sustain this much larger population that it now has. Um, similarly, if you just look back through kind of common lists of most influential people ever, um, often these are researchers um, uh, normally are researchers, thinkers or politicians. So again this is something that's very difficult to uh, quantify, but it's there again an area that I can often think um, that I often think can be one of the best things you can go into especially because just very important areas often are very under the So colleagues of mine at Oxford and Cambridge, um, they study risks to the continued survival of the human race. So it's a very kind of grandiose project. Um, But both through natural disasters such as asteroids and uh, um, supervolcanoes and things, but also man-made events, so climate change being one, next generations of weapons of mass destruction like uh, synthetic biology being another. And this is obviously a big deal. It's going to, you know, maybe the chances are fairly small, but if they do happen, they kill seven billion people and um, uh, prevent the continued existence of the human race. Which again seems like an important thing to do. And it currently has a uh, number of academic papers written on this topic is less than the number of academic papers written on the daily life cycle of the dung beetle. And so, because the search is. Uh, you know, it's often guided by what's most kind of academically interesting, not necessarily what's most practically important that means there can be these incredibly important issues that are uh, significantly um, neglected uh, in terms of high quality academic research done with them. so these are just some examples. Um, if you're kind of interested by this by this folks um, to really kind of think out how think about how we can make the most difference, what can we do next Well you can certainly ask me questions in the next hour or so um, and then also, you can go on the website. So we're still a new organization, but we're providing additional content um, very regularly and updating it. And there's already, uh, if you're willing to dig through the blog already, a wealth of information on there. Um, you can apply for one-on-one career coaching. So uh, we have coaches who uh, will just guide you through your choice. So we'll give you up to a week's worth of personalized research and many conversations um, in order to really help you, like work out all the different, uh, all the different factors and what the best, um, what the best approach is for you, because obviously, um, you know, I tried to give some general considerations, but obviously they have, to, you know, an awful lot goes on when these are applied to specific people. Um, you can also join. So there's a kind of broader community that's starting to form around this called the Effective Altruism community, and this is. Um, group of, uh, um, now got a number of thousands of people who are really taking these ideas seriously and are really trying to build principles of doing more and doing, uh, doing good more effectively into their lives. Um, and if you're interested in that, it's actually pretty vibrant. You can really get involved. Um, easiest place to start is um, the Facebook group, Effective Altruists, um, but there's also a website effectivealtruism.com as well. Last thing you can do if you want is to just shoot me an email. Um, don't promise to be lightning fast I'm trying to like book at the moment it's taking up most of my time um, but no, I always love to hear from people who are like really serious about this idea of um, trying to do as much good as they can and if you want to do that my, so my name is William McCaskill so it's william.mccaskill at 80,000hours.org um, and I'd absolutely love to hear from you okay, thanks
0: Thank you very much. Well, I think we have uh, 45 minutes for uh, questions and discussion. We are recording a podcast of this, so it's really important that you use a microphone when you actually ask the question. The microphone is coming, um, is coming around. Don't hold it too close, don't hold it too far away um, to get the level get the right. Um, keep your hands up, I'll try to um, take a note if you want to ask a question. We'll start Down here with the gentleman in the, the blue gentleman.
3: Hi, thanks for the, uh, the presentation. I was, I, I had a sort of a a thought which I was then kind of sort of checking as, as, as you went uh, through your presentation whether yeah. this kind of way of thinking, I don't, I don't mean this as a kind of offensive criticism, <laughs> but just as a thought, whether this kind of way of thinking is actually breeding elitism. Mm-hmm. I give an example. You g- gave this example of this not so clever because he didn't have a stellar education, mm-hmm. a guy who kind of came up with this weed who saved millions of lives. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a strange way of pre- uh, sort of prefacing somebody who saved so many lives? Mm-hmm. Maybe he was very intelligent because he did that. But this is a weird kind of, when you're thinking about doing maximum good, Mm -hmm. I wonder whether you do get into this kind of elitist way of thinking of prefacing things in that kind of way. Of course, having an Oxford background kind of, in a way, uh, one would kind of be suspicious anyway. But. wouldn't it be much more sensible to turn it round? Mm-hmm. And instead of say, well, how can we prevent from doing the maximum bad? Mm-hmm. In other words, if I decide to become a drug dealer or an arms you know, sales guy or build a nuclear weapon, you know, chances are I'll be killing people. Yep. Whereas if I want to be, and so that might not be the best thing to do if I don't want to kill people. But if you turn it round to your way of thinking, then clearly I would, you would never recommend somebody to become a car mechanic. Mm-hmm. It would always be the open heart surgeon.
1: Mm-hmm
3: but what would you do if the ambulance breaks down? Mm-hmm. You would need the car mechanic. Yeah. So I think you know, there, there's a real danger in your argument, and I just put this to you to think about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. So, yeah, there's a good few things there. So one thing is, so yeah, there's uh, one thing about elitism. Um, there was uh, encouraging people not to do bad as well as doing good. Um, and then there's uh, a thought about well, the importance of car mechanics as well as car uh, surgeons. Uh, and I think all are really good points. Um, so one thing is, uh, I, in terms of people doing huge amounts of good, so it is just going to be a fact of the world that the people, and this isn't a good fact of the world, um, but it's going to be true that the people who have the most power will have the most power to do good or to bad. Um, and because the world is this incredibly unequal place, um, that's going to be limited to, or uh, well, it's going to be much harder for some people. So I talked about politics, for example. Um, the fact that you're lucky enough to have been born into a certain background just means you're going to have much more power to do good than the world. That's just going to have to be true because we live in this sucky world where not everyone has an equal shot at opportunities um, and where doing good is just an opportunity like other things. Um, what that should make us think isn't that we should say, um, everyone can do an equal amount of good um, because that would just that would just be false. One thing that is true is everyone in uh, affluent countries can do huge amounts of good. Um, the car mechanic who donates ten percent of her income, um, Julia Wise, who's uh, a social worker, um, who donates a um, significant portion of her income, you can do huge amounts of good far more than um, you might have expected. But what that shows is just we shouldn't particularly judge people. So. Um, if someone goes it, you shouldn 't have kind of lord praise on people simply because they're able to do huge amounts of good um, because part of that's just how lucky they got. What you should be thinking about is well how much good can I do relative to what 's possible and how well am I doing at that and maybe in terms of when we 're praising people that 's what we should base on um, encouraging people to do not to do bad um, I just totally agree with that um, uh, I guess um, in the kind of landscape, there are lots of people encouraging you not to do bad, um, the police and so on, um, and where there's not that many people encouraging you really to do as much good as like, you can. And so that's why I tend to focus on um, on the latter. The final thing is um, karma headaches. Um So I do actually think that, uh, I actually think your point is really good, because we often think of... Um, Yeah, no one's ever said this, but in the kind of ethical careers discussion, there's almost a hint that's like, well, these are the careers that do good, and then other things are kind of neutral. But I just don't think that's true at all, because, precisely because um, if you're a car mechanic, you are repairing the cars for people who are doing good, who are like heart surgeons and so on. I actually think that just generally, um, well, if you think that just economic progress in general has been good, and I think it's been extremely good, um, even after you take into account negative effects like... Climate change and other things, um, then it's just got to be the case that actually just doing a regular job and um, providing a contribution to, that so- to society that way is actually you know, just doing a good thing. I think it should be even praised. Um, whether it's the most good you can do is a kind of different matter. And in the contrast, if it's someone who has a choice between being a car mechanic and an open heart surgeon, well, uh, one question is just, well, if I were, I mean, yeah. Two questions are just, well, actually, how much of an impact am I going to be having? So maybe as a car mechanic, sometimes I will be repairing the cars of um, other people who are doing lots of good, um, but that's clearly not going to be the the, uh, the typical case. And so you will be able to look, think about, like, well, what are the impacts I have doing this, what are the impacts I would have as an open heart surgeon. Um, and then the second thought is just, well, if I don't become a car mechanic there will be plenty of other people who will be um, doing that and doing much the same job that I would be doing. So um, You need to think about like what would happen given how everyone else acts, uh, not uh, what would happen if everyone acted decided, which would be quite a different sort of world. Uh, third row from the back, um, the center
0: of that
4: Thanks. I thought this was very good and very interesting. So I was thinking about this guy, Greg Lewis. Was that his yeah, name? Yeah, yeah,
1: does,
4: yeah. So, uh, so he was planning to contribute a few million pounds uh, mm-hmm. throughout his career, mm-hmm. but one could argue, I suppose, that actually his contribution is going to be greater. But mm-hmm. right? because now you're using <clears> throat> his throat> examples here, and possibly you're, you're, I mean, by the use of that example, you're, you're encouraging people to go yeah. into. To this and of course, one can use this argument that well, if you haven't used him, you would have used another geeky person who would have made different calculations. But let's disregard that, let's suppose that there wasn't anyone who made quite such a good story. <laughs> uh, so, so there are these secondary effects, I suppose, from this effective altruism work. And so, how do you view these firstly? It seems to me harder to quantify them, mm-hmm. but if you have any ideas about how one could quantify yeah. them, that would be interesting. And secondly secondary, how do you think like how one could maximize these? So so one idea would be like well to advise people to do spectacular stuff that mm-hmm. gets media attention. Mm-hmm. Another idea would be to encourage people to like to do different stuff. So, for instance, have one person, you mm-hmm. know, from 8,000 hours at each major workplace, so they get in touch with people. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps they should crowd in one place, because then they, I mean, they, yeah. they, they have more impact in that way. So, Okay, yeah. Sorry. So, I think that's a
1: terrific question. And, um, yeah, something also I can advocate for is, often call it going meta. So, just as you can donate to a charity, you can donate to. A different charity that fundraises for that charity right. actually has a much larger impact as a result and some people in the community are in fact trying that they're setting up an organisation just fundraises for uh, best other charities and the same thing happens in um, you know you could uh, deliberately just influence other people to pursue this, but uh, whatever career you would have done, if you could convince two people to do the career you would have done, you've doubled your own impact um, uh, yeah, so I think these things are difficult to quantify, and um, but they're clearly very important. Um, I think the early people who are doing, um, uh, yeah, so the early people who are pursuing certain, a certain sort of career um, and you know demonstrating that <coughs> it's possible or demonstrating the good that um, they can do, it's yeah very plausible that like the impact they have is through convincing other people to do the same. Um, in fact, I think that's just very often the case when it comes to doing good. So I think uh, if I do- choose to donate 10% of my earnings, um, I think most of the benefit of that will come through convincing other people to do the same. Similarly, when I became vegetarian, um, subsequently convinced a few people to do the same, um, they're going to have all the problems doing that again. And yeah, that can, I mean, I just think it's a correct point. So it's something you might not think about, um, but something... Which can affect the calculation. quite great Is
5: there a final round? Hello, thank you for the um, presentation. I think there's a massive flaw with this notion of earning money to give back into goods. So firstly, you're assuming that aid and charities are good, mm-hmm. and many people would say so that's not true and um, the second thing is what about an investment banker who spends 50 years earning mm-hmm. millions of pounds then donates it to a charity where is all that money come from and that money that he's created in yeah. the city has that probably gone into all sorts of awful things that's created the poverty yeah. that he's yeah. then donating to yeah. okay fantastic great so um,
1: uh, uh, yeah so two things um, so one is whether charities need made a good um, and the second is doing harm through earning. Uh, uh, so on the first thing, um, just I think that, is aid good or bad? It's just a terrible thing. So aid is this vastly, so think of all the different aid programs that exist, there are tens of thousands of them, um, maybe even hundreds of thousands. The question is, um, well, one question you could ask is, is, is this good or bad on average? Um, but that's not actually that interesting. What you're interested in is how good are the best things. Um, I think even on that on-average question, uh, people often make mistakes. So there's a kind of simple argument showing that aid actually ha- aid simply has to have been fantastically cost-effective on average. Um, so uh, aid skeptics normally focus on typical cases of aid. And they neglect to look at how good the best cases of aid are. So total aid spending has been $4.3 trillion. Um, one of the things AIDS spending has done is eradicate smallpox. Um, the eradication of smallpox has saved the very most conservative estimate, 60 million lives. Got um, all those numbers together, and you, that shows that even if AIDS did absolutely no good at all, except insofar as we eradicated smallpox, then the benefits would amount to uh, um, one life saved for every $70,000, um, which is 100 times less than the US is willing to spend to save a life. Um, so that's just looking at the average. But again, what we should care about is just the very best um, interventions. Because um, we're not just throwing money randomly, um, we're looking at the things that do the very most good. And you can provide, get huge amounts of information. Them. And uh, when we look at things that are, among the top-recommended charities, like deworming and so on, it just becomes very difficult indeed to see um, how, in this case, the costs could be outweighing the benefits. Something I'm always open to. They're very... Very often, many ways in which you have unexpected costs, you can unexpectedly do harm. One way, thinking about what would have happened otherwise, maybe you do something and it's good, but actually you're just displacing something else that would have been happening. So I'm kind of very open to that in kind of every case. But it would be... uh, Yeah, so the first thing is that it would be remarkably... It'd be this, yeah, really remarkable fact of all ways of helping... um, just do more harm than good. Um, we'd be really having to try to screw it up. Uh, um, and then, maybe the second thing as well is if you think, well, aid isn't the solution, you should be doing something else. Money can buy almost anything. Um, it's just, all money is, is just the unit of power to do things in the world. Um, and if it could only be the case that um, you're not able to use that to do good things, if you literally think there's just no way of turning money into good outcomes. And that seems like it'd be a very, you know, you'd have to be kind of very sceptical um, in, in order to believe that. Second thing was um, finance. Uh, so I think there's a great point. And so definitely don't think you should be going into um, uh, careers that are going to do a huge amount of harm, certainly not careers where um, the harm does more good, uh, you do more harm than good, so that would just be obvious. And um, you shouldn't, probably shouldn't go into careers where you do a significant amount of harm, maybe more good, but it's somewhat comparable. So philosophers debate these sorts of things, of how much good outweighs some amount of harm. It's certainly true you'll always be doing harm. So we all do harm all the time. Um, if you become a doctor, then utterly, predictably, at some point, um, you'll make mistakes. And maybe make mistakes for reasons are kind of your fault. You'll have um, gone to bed too late, or you have been thinking the night before or something. And people will have been worse off than they would otherwise have been. Um, so always going to be doing harm. The question is just how much and what the, the benefits. Within finance, the most important thing is just to remember that finance is this absolutely huge field. So um, I only know the US figures, but about a million people work in the financial sector. Um, and to save life, it can't be the case that finance is um, net harmful if we just took finance from the world then uh, economies just wouldn't be able to work at all Um, and so it can only be that like some things within finance are harmful Um, and the question then is just well which are they and things like um, certain sorts of speculation um, certain certain sorts of short selling uh, mergers and acquisitions within investment banking definitely can seem like they're just destroying social value other cases, I think, are just have very little social value. So um, Matt, someone who is earning to give within finance, um, he engages in arbitrages, so that means you just buy a stock on the European stock market, pay five pence to sell it on the U.S. stock market, and you make a penny from doing that, something like that. There might be some very small social value in that through increasing liquidity of markets, but it's going to be very small at all. I think, to a first approximation, it's just not really doing very much good at all. But at the same time, it's just very difficult to see how it could possibly be doing harm. And so, um, saying something like finance is harmful, it's just, it's kind of, it's got to be wrong because finance just in general is a net um, positive. and it's also just this um, massive generalization. It'd be like saying manufacturing is harmful, or physics is harmful. Um, it just uh, wouldn't make sense. And so we need to think on a case-by-case basis. What's the sort of work I'll be doing, and what are the social costs and social harms of that um, The final thing, seeing as this is officially a philosophy talk, is um, uh, also just thinking about what would have happened otherwise again. so. Taking this objection a little bit further, you might say, well, what about if you're working for some really evil organization? Um, what if you're working for the Nazis in order to <laughs> give away your money and save some lives? Um, you know, surely, that couldn't be, surely that couldn't be a good thing to do. Um, well, we actually already have a story of someone who did that, mm-hmm. namely Oskar Schindler. Um, so he deliberately worked in running ammunition factories uh, for the Nazis in order that he could literally buy the lives of uh, 1,200 of his Jewish workers. And people praise and no one questions that. And the reason is, looking back, we say, well, yeah, if he wasn't doing that, someone else would have been in his shoes, in fact, doing an even worse job. And I think that can apply in uh, what gets regarded as immoral industries as well. So um, if we had lots of altruistic young people going into finance, rather than people who are solely self-interested and solely out to make money, do we think some of the recent crises would have been more likely to happen or less likely to happen? It seems like they'd clearly be less likely to happen. You'd be um, uh, If someone's going into a certain career for altruistic social reasons, surely they're at the same time going to be um, less ruthless than the people who are solely in there to um, make money. So there's a real worry with the kind of common sense ethical careers advice that it means that you select out um, altruistic people precisely where they're needed most.
3: We had a very early hand, gentlemen, in the second row. Thanks very much. Um, I have two short questions, Mm -hmm. if I may. The first is a bit tangential, but I think it's worth asking. Um, How far are you interested in the ethical development of individuals who pursue different careers? Mm-hmm. After all, ethics is not just about what you do, but it's also about what sort of a person you become mm-hmm. in a certain environment over time. Yeah. And the other question is just a rather silly question, mm-hmm. but I don't want to know what you say. Do you think you could describe yourself as a 21st century vocational utilitarian? Vocational utilitarian.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, okay terrific. So, what about? Um, yeah, so um, uh, so the first question was, what about what you become as a person? Yeah. Um, isn't that of importance as well?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I guess my thought is just... Uh, no. So <laughs> No, that's a bit too extreme. But um, just, okay, let's suppose that we do have a view, according to which it is important to cultivate certain virtues and be a certain sort of person. The question is then just a matter of weighing. And so... And I think if you take some of the big problems in the world seriously, um, extremity of global poverty, um, the you know, effects on future people through climate change and so on, um, the difference you can have is just absolutely huge. Um, you know, Like I say, on the order of saving hundreds of lives, thousands of lives, making a huge difference for tens of thousands of people. And so we could think about a case like Schindler. Maybe he did utterly corrupt his character through doing the work he did, but in doing so, um, was able to do a huge amount of good, I guess I kind of think two things about that, one is, even if that was bad, it was just clearly worth it, but then the second thing I think is that there's a kind of deep integrity there, so, um, uh, a kind of sacrificing your own virtue in order to do, like, like, in order to, um, provide, um, a bigger benefit, it seems like that's admirable in its own way, um, then the second thing is um, am I a 21st century vocational utilitarian um, so for those in the audience uh, utilitarianism is the view that in any situation what you want to do is just maximise the amount of good you do where good is just defined as the sum total of human of, uh, not just human but sum total of welfare in the world um, and I think uh, the answer is no so um, there's an important difference, I think, between... So my view is more that the effects you can have on other people are the dominant moral consideration when it comes to thinking about your choice of career. Because we live in this very unusual time... Um, so if I gave you a chart of uh, economic progress over the last 2,000 years, um, I just created this graph, so I'm really excited about it. Um, but yeah, this is the kind of axis and you go higher up you go as the wealthier you are, this is time and the graph charts the UK and India and they crawl along the bottom and it's wealth per capita GDP per capita For almost all of human history um, people have lived on about two or three dollars per day but then in the last few hundred years there's this huge spike among developed countries um, uh, among the UK and the USA and so on. We were now 100 times richer than we were just a couple of hundred years ago. Whereas developing countries um, have only peaked at just a little bit. Um, they may be five times richer or something like that, maybe even less. And so we live in this just very unusual time where we have um, incredible economic progress that's never really been seen before, but incredibly unequal economic progress. <laughs> and this gives us this amazing amount of power in the world. Um, That can be power to do harm, but also power to do good. And I think that's just empirically very unintuitive. And even if you have the view of, like, you know, there are many important things in the world. One is helping other people, one is cultivating your own virtues, uh, other things as well. Um, Even if that was true, I think, in a normal world, uh, the world we actually live in is just really weird, where we are kind of the... um, incredibly wealthy, we're like the aristocracy among the world, and for people in such an unusual position um, I think that that means that the amount you can help other people becomes the dominant moral consideration, if not the only one.
5: Hello, thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you, a very good speech I just wanted to ask, uh, considering you've been able to set up your own charity um, mm-hmm. what are the challenges you faced with fundraising and acquiring funding and oh. how did you um, overcome them?
1: Okay, great um, Yeah, so that's a really good question so I was the, um, the person responsible for fundraising when we started um, so I think we had it a lot easier than most charities do So, and this is for two reasons so giving what we can was entirely voluntary, yeah, on an entirely volu- voluntary basis, for the first two and a half to three years. Um, and that meant, so that meant that by the time we actually decided to incorporate and take staff, um, so I've never been paid by this charity, I like just continue as academic, but um, we now have a number of staff, and that meant that there was already like, we made quite a big impression on what people knew about us and so on. Um, and that meant that we already had a very wide network of people we could talk to about getting funding. Um, that, was one, that was one reason why it was much easier for us than I think other charities. And then the second being, um, if your purpose has been encouraging people to give much more than they would otherwise have done, um, and you've been quite successful at that, well, that means you're now, you know lots of people who um, are giving very large proportions. Um, and... In our case, um, the argument for giving to giving what we can say about in one of these charities is this fundraising argument. So we worked out um, every uh, pound given to giving what we can would generate about £10 pounds in increased donations to um, uh, the most, you know, the charities we were recommending. And so that meant for the people we were, and who were our members the people giving 10% or more, and there was this very strong argument. You just by effectively funding fundraising, you could get this very large uh, multiplier. And so that meant we also had this very... We had a community of people who knew us and who were giving large amounts, um, and we just had this very strong argument for giving to us. Um, and that still um, has stayed through. Uh, and so those were the big things. Um, if you want afterwards, I can tell you much more, much more depth my... Views on fundraising in general. Um, I think it's something that people often go about the wrong way, um, uh, but maybe that would be better for us to But so. I right, really enjoy tickets.
0: Gentleman, election.
2: Hi. Um, so I've got a kind of point that I kind of question I want to ask everyone, which is I'll start by saying that I think it's very encouraging to see so many people in this room who've come to a lecture about wanting to make a difference when choosing a career. And, and I think my my take on that is that when I was a, and I know not everyone's a, a student here, but when I was a student and I was choosing a career, I think the idea of making a difference would have would have come up and would have crossed my mind. So um, I, I think I, I congratulate you all for giving you up your Tuesday night to, to actually come and, come and hear Will speak. Um, I, th- I think the important thing that everyone should be asking themselves as well as, how they can make a difference to choose a career is, is why they want to do that. Yeah. And, I, and I think you know, that answer isn't going to be the same for everyone. And I think you're all going to have your own personal philosophies and your personal ideas. You might have a religious motivation. You might have a, some sort of personal um, background that, that kind of gives you that motivation. But I think by understanding what's driving you, what brought you to this room today and what, what makes you want to make a difference, you, you'll find that... Um, you, know, you whatever you choose to do is going to be much more effective and much more fulfilling for you because ultimately that's the motivation that you're looking to you're looking to fill. Um, and I think you know when the going gets tough in in any career, I think you you do fall back on your personal motivation and your you know the reason that you chose it in the first place and the reason that you're there. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's not really a question, <laughs> for will I, I, it's just something I wanted to say. So yeah. thank you very much.
1: Okay, no, it's a great point. So. Um, and something I could have stressed more is just all the stuff that has to be tailored to the person, and your fit with the specific video is just a huge factor in relating all of this stuff. Pin the
0: Hi, um, thanks so much for your time today. Um, just had a quick question um, How do you pick and choose the most effective charities? Um, I just find when donating, there's always an issue with transparency. And uh, also, sort of, no idea, you know, where my money is actually going.
1: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, okay, great. So, uh, when we started, yeah, the, the method was uh, as follows, which is... So, health and development economists have done um, a bit, recent very high-quality research in order to work out what sort of programs um, do uh, the most to help other people... Um, with money put into them, and uh, the reason they do that is to advise developing world governments on how they can best spend their scarce resources to maximise the benefit for their population. And so the first thing we did was um, uh, look at that evidence, find the most effective programmes, then find the charities working in those programmes, and then go into deep, go into a bit more detail in terms of what's this charity actually doing. Was it um, Is it implementing this program effectively? Is it doing the evaluation of what it's doing? Um, And then we found these kind of, the charities that seem to do well on both of these dimensions. So the two were related to deworming. So unfortunately, the best charities often have the worst names. So Schister sumais control initiative and deworm the world were two of the ones we recommended. Um, uh, A little bit before we launched, there's another charity evaluator as well. And that's just got better and better, and it's bigger and bigger as well. So, and I think they're the best uh, resource you can go to, and that's called GiveWell, so um, givewell.com. And they go into a tremendous amount of depth, uh, value and transparency of organizations as well, very highly. So um, it's a similar sort of methodology of looking at the very best academic research, and then um, uh, recommending charities on that basis. And they recommend those two charities I mentioned. Um, they also recommend Give Directly. So, um, that's a charity that simply makes cash transfers to um, the poorest people in, uh, I think, they're based in Kenya. Uh, and again, I think of that as kind of a good baseline. So, if you're trying to help people um, and help people who in severe poverty, we'll start off by um, thinking just, well, how much can simply money do? And only donate to someone else if you think you can do even better. Um, and they value transparency extremely highly, just so that we actually know exactly what's going on with this one. Um, so it's just incredible wealth of information. There must be millions of words of material on this. Have a question from uh, over here? Okay.
0: And then once you've asked a question, just hand the microphone over to the person uh, almost right behind you.
5: Okay.
6: Um so I'm interested in when you're looking at uh, making a difference you're Mm -hmm. looking at a kind of quantitative or looking at where can I make the biggest difference Mm -hmm. um, rather than kind of where you feel like you're going to make the biggest difference or how do you feel in making a difference Um, and so I'm interested um, when you were suggesting the kind of areas where you might make the biggest impact Mm -hmm. we kind of came to a conclusion that actually you could potentially make as big a difference as a mechanic potentially being a good mechanic you could actually save more lives than the three that the doctor could uh, save in his lifetime by those aggregate results, or um, teaching somebody who's going to be working in one of those big finance institutions, teaching them good economics or against greed, perhaps, could have a bigger impact longer term. So if they, and depend as well on your opportunity to have an impact in policy and innovation and those kind of things, um, looking at whether you feel like you're making a difference And also, what are you best at? Mm -hmm. In terms of, uh, if you look at OD theories, in terms of, uh, kind of, people are most effective in the job that they are motivated to do Mm -hmm. and are best placed to do. Mm -hmm. um, Without sounding too 1984,
1: um, (laughs) whatever about that. Can you explain what OD theories are?
6: Uh, Organizational development theories that look at um, kind of humanistic principles, Mm -hmm. where you'd say that actually. Somebody's going to perform best in their job mm-hmm. if they are motivated to do well, uh, and that's often by being appreciated for it or being best placed to Perfect. do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I just wanted interested in what you're thinking about.
1: Okay. Perfect. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So the first qualification is, uh, I don't think it's kind of a free-for-all where any career is possibly the best thing. Um, I mean, in the case of if someone really did have the option between being a mechanic and an open heart surgeon, then I'd encourage being an open heart surgeon. And but where the main benefits are through the donations you can make as a result of that. But, um, but then, yeah, importantly, the idea of kind of following your passion or doing what you're best at. So this is just a very common of concept in uh, doing good. And now I just certainly think it's important um, because. If you go into a career that you're just going to hate, you're not going to be able to rise to the top. You're not going to be able to do very well. Um, but I think, in general, at least to do what you're passionate about is significantly overstated. Um, and I think that for two reasons. So um, one is most people just don't have work-related passions. So only 6% of <laughs> students have passions that um, are actually related to jobs that they can reasonably get. Um, most people you know, have passions but they're about music and sports and so on and this is incredibly precisely for that reason it's incredibly difficult to um, have a successful career in one of those areas um, although some of my friends have just done it so do you know the band Clean Bandit? Um, yeah I was friends with them at Cambridge now they're just huge, it's amazing <laughs> um, so unless you're them um, probably, <laughs> probably not more, uh, you know, it's very difficult to do well uh, going into music or something like that. Uh, and the other thing, then, as well as just people not having work related passions, is neglecting actually how much you change in the course of a job and actually neglecting just how much passion arises out of the nature of the work you're doing rather than facts about yourself. So um, I'm having to defer to some of my colleagues at Designers because it wasn't me that was doing the literature reviews here. The suggestion was that the biggest. Um, Cont- contributors to job satisfaction weren't things to do with fit, but were things to do with um, is the job mentally challenging? Um, do you get autonomy in the role? Um, is, it a, is it a job that has kind of sense of greater purpose around it? That is the greatest contributors to job satisfaction, the things to do with the job itself rather than your personal kind of motivations. In terms of doing what you're best at, um, yeah, I think that is um, uh, I think that is very important. It's um, again something I think can potentially be overstated. It can be easy to think, well, I've been doing this thing, I'm doing it well in the past, and therefore I couldn't do anything else, which would just be anchoring too much on what you've already done. Um, but uh, if it is the case that you can just do much better at one thing than you can at another. Then I think it can be very important to do that thing. So, um, uh, And I think that is that is a very important consideration because it's often the. It seems like the people who become most successful in a field have I mean, a very really kind of outsized influence as a result. Um, uh, so, yeah, so maybe. Yeah, and like, pretty wary of a follow your passion and slogan, I think that generally does more harm than good. You kind of do what you're good at is um, something I'm.
5: Uh, a bit more favorables. Hi, um, just kind of a couple of things Firstly it's interesting that it's cropped up a lot um, I am a fundraiser, I've worked oh, yeah. for lots of different charities doing kind of corporate fundraising and major donor fundraising and mm-hmm. I think it's, I chose the career to make a difference mm-hmm. because I think that if you're engaging with donors maybe slightly different to people like you who've chosen to give away their money but mm-hmm. people that would never engage with a cause and you convince them to donate to something they would never have thought of doing otherwise, Mm -hmm. you are having a huge impact. That's something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, I now work for a company called Prospectus, who are a consultancy who works solely in the charity sector, and I headhunt the best fundraisers to go to the best charities. So again, a little bit removed, but still having aiming to have a high impact people that i work with are inundated every day with graduates Mm -hmm. coming to prospectus and saying i want to get into the charity sector i want to make a difference do you think it's a problem that that's still kind of a default setting for people that want to make a difference Mm -hmm. um and kind of i mean what would you say to those sorts of graduates when you're having those questions on a daily basis
1: yeah so um Uh, For that, I mean, precisely, as you say, there's just so many people wanting to um, pursue lines of work like that. Again, you've got to think about, yeah, what's the impact you're having on the margin? Like, how much better is it that you're doing this than whoever would have been in your shoes? Um, Another kind of uh, general risk with fundraising as well is that um, if I raise a pound um, for the charity I'm raising money for, like how much of that is new philanthropic money and how much is money that would have been donated elsewhere. Um, It's kind of notable that uh, even as we've got uh, substantially richer and the number of charities has um, expanded an awful lot, people give just about the same proportion. Um, And that's a really interesting question because it's a way that you can have less of an impact than you might think. Um, I've tried to find information on it. It's not out there, no one actually knows. Uh, But yeah, so I think in this case, um, if it is just that so many people are going to be doing this, um, there's kind of two things. So one is, if you're just employed to be uh, kind of a fundraiser, and you don't think you're really going to be doing much better than whoever would have been in your shoes, um, then it does seem difficult to see, well, what's the additional impact you're having. But if you have more latitude, say... Decide where you fund those for. If it's the case that some charities do much more good than others, then um, by redirecting those funds, um, yeah, potentially you have an absolutely huge um, impact, um, making sure money goes to the more cost effective causes. And then the other thing is like, yeah, if you are just significantly better than, um, at this than other people. So, um, one example Scott Harrison, a nightclub promoter who then founded Charity Water. Um, just this amazing marketeer who's then brought in huge amounts of money um, through novel marketing, and novel fundraising techniques, especially social media. Um, again, there's a question of you know how much would have been donated otherwise. But in that case, just that's even if it's fifty percent, it's generated huge amounts of money for kind of top courts. So that's the sort of question we need to, um, I guess, they need to think about. But I think like potentially, yeah, fundraisers can do. Um, I apologize
0: to everyone who didn't get to ask that question because we're out of time, but maybe we'll have the time to stick around yeah, sure. for a minute or two to answer questions on a one to one basis. Thanks so much again. Yeah. <laughs>